welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have artist and activist Noah Scalin join us for a conversation about the generational divide with the rise of the internet age. Together, we talk about the internet self versus the physical self or a lack thereof, the danger of curation, and the possibility that political beliefs may be taking over the role of religion. <laughs> Hi, Fat Cat. Uh, my co-producer is here with me today. This is definitely a thought-provoking conversation that is going to make you think about how the internet has really shaped our identity and how we interact with other people. I mean, these ideas I could talk about for hours. This is definitely just like a touch of the many conversations I imagine I'll be talking about these different ideas on this space and on this podcast. So tune in. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, how do you feel about recording a podcast this morning? <laughs> I feel fine. I, I, you know, I'm one of those people who tends to say yes to things. And I was like, I should probably research this. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, well, my friend Gary said I should do it. So I said, okay. And then I was like, maybe I should actually look it up and see what, <laughs> what you've been talking about. I think it would be like your blandest interview subject. It looks like you've had some very exciting interviews. What about- makes intense topics (laughs) yeah well what makes you think you're gonna be bland i'm I'm probably not gonna curse as much as everybody else did (laughs) (laughs) you can do whatever you want on this show honestly yeah no Um, you know what i'm just so practiced at not doing it because i have to do a lot of stuff where i speak publicly or i or i dj sometimes on the radio so you just get into a mode of if i'm being recorded i am talking a very specific way (laughs) it's funny you say that because gary kind of warned me about you oh warned me oh oh, yeah what did he say now i want to (laughs) know well he was just like he does a lot of interviews so he might be a little bit like a little more practiced exact well (laughs) just in terms of like restricted of like you know specific answers that you would say or other things like that because i think a lot of the show, some of the episodes are about vulnerability and other pieces that are more emotional because I am a doctoral student in clinical psychology. Well, we can turn it into a therapy session if that is. That's, that's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I'm going for. Which is why when you say you're going to be bland, I'm like, I don't, I don't really think that any human is inherently. Bland. No, I don't think I'm bland. I just was like, oh my gosh, I feel like there's an expectation <laughs> now of me being like way more wild, like uh, you know. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm sure you have wild sides to you that... Somewhere. It's been a while. (laughs) I've been on lockdown for a long time. I'm a parent. You know, things are are a lot calmer now. Of course. Yeah, on a scale of 1 to 10, how comfortable do you feel with vulnerability? Um, probably pretty low, actually. Ooh, this is going to be real fun. (laughs) (laughs) No, I am in the right setting, you know. I I think I'm very open up to a point. I think that's the answer. It's like, Mm -hmm. I've got... I pretty much tell people anything, you know, and then there's a wall and then it stops. Mm-hmm. So how's that sound? 
It's not, you said low though. So what what makes you feel uncomfortable with it? I don't know. I just I think it's like if it's personal stuff, you know, this is a public space. Right. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, because I've had to be a public persona for a while. And I think when you do that, some people really put it all out there. And I'll look at people's social feeds and it's like it is very personal about everything going on. And I don't know. I guess I just have a little more interest in sort of separating that public persona from my private life. I don't want to have people access all of me. <laughs> yeah. Tell me why. Hmm. I guess, you know, it's a combination of the fact that I live with, with my wife is a very private person and I have a child and there's mm-hmm. safety concerns around her. And I think mm. it's just all around an interest in sort of managing access. I've had people enter my life who I've been very trusting with and have taken advantage of me. And so I don't mm. want to just sort of let anybody in. You're doing well on this this doctoral <laughs> thing. You're, you're, you got the, the hmm down. You let people just ramble and then you let me pull this thread. And, that is uh, exactly what I do. And it's so fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask if you could tell me more about that story and how it shaped you. What, people sort of getting access to my life? You, you know. Said, yeah, there was a person. Uh, so I did a po- I did um, a public blog where it was very popular and people, you know, got very enthusiastic and people I didn't know that were like contributing. And so I brought them into it. You know, I, I'm always like, hey, let's collaborate. Let's be game. But I think people have a hard time separating out, you know, what is that level of access and who you are right i think like i think when you see someone you don't know that is a celebrity and i don't consider myself a celebrity but i think it's some to some people i am known quantity and i think that you know that becomes difficult to separate out and i had i'll give you the most recent example of of again there have been many there was a person who um was a big fan supporter you know was enthusiastic would be commenting on everything and i tend to respond if you comment you like something i'll say thank you if you ask me if I'll be on your podcast, I'll say yes, generally. Trying to be better about saying no. But, I'm, I, you know, I'm a people pleaser at heart. That can be a dangerous thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where boundaries become important. But yeah. Uh, so this person was basically like very enthusiastic, very supportive, always commenting. And, you know, I try to keep that level of distance myself because other people don't always necessarily maintain it. And so I was just like, here's where my line is on that. I knew she was a little over-enthusiastic, let's say. And uh, she's married, kids, you know, seemed like there was enough space in there that felt like I'm not saying I'm available. I have a wife, a child, professional. Right. But she uh, came up to me when I was by myself after I'd finished painting a mural and was like, hey, I have to tell you something. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) This is when it's like, you know what? Keep it to yourself. Yes. She's like. I, I, I'm in love with you, or I was in love with you, but I'm not anymore. I've worked it out in my head. And I was just like, I do not need this information from you. And so now I'm super uncomfortable, like by myself somewhere, feeling very unsafe yeah. and just kind of trying to end this conversation as quickly and as safely as possible. Cause I don't know if that points that, that no. person's going to be dangerous. So you I'm don't know like, anything. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, um, let's, you know, like, wow, thanks for sharing that. You know, I don't feel that way about you and I need to go right now. And, uh, and so then got home and told my wife, I was like, oh my gosh. And this is like maybe the third or fourth time I've had somebody sort of just glom onto me and become wow. too close. So I was just like, uh. so, you know, at that point I'm like anxious and I write this note basically back to her that's mm-hmm. like, we shall not be communicating anymore and goodbye and blocked yeah. her on everything I had and then, you know, blocked her email so that I couldn't get a response back about it. Cause it was just like, goodbye, go do deal with what you need to deal with in your life, but I'm wow. not accessible to you. So that happens. Well, that's an example. And so was there a big shift after that in how you 
participated in your work in connection with other people? You know, I've, I, yeah, I mean, I've had to remain sort of vigilant about this stuff. And I think having, again, letting people in, giving people access, there's always this little danger. And uh, yeah, social media, you know, I, I have sort of slowly been moving away from it. I maintain it because of its marketing purposes, but it's sort of personal access piece feels so inauthentic to me. It's interesting, though, because I feel like in terms of like generational differences, between us the younger yeah. generations are now really pushing this like full you know authentic self online and like that's how you're connecting with people yeah it is weird to feel that gap um my sister who's my business partner and she's four and a half years younger than me you know we're, we're people who grew up in a different era and yes. it's weird to identify how different that is because you won't feel that way until you're older and then you go oh it's so weird that the things that are normal to me are not normal anymore and the yeah. ways that modes of communication are different. And so much has changed in some very profound ways. And we're not digital natives, right? That's stuff that came about in our youth. And we learned about it as this sort of external thing that we participated in and made choices about. But it wasn't the water that we swim in. Right. And so, yeah, for younger folks who it's just, yeah, this is where we live and this is how we communicate. And I came up against that as a teacher. I was uh, teaching a... Um, Core. So I, I've taught for a long time in a variety of ways. So I taught a class uh, for many years at VCU here in Richmond, Virginia Commonwealth University, where I called Design Rebels, and it was about activism and design, because that's what I'd been doing for a long time as a job. And I taught it for about 13 years. Well, it's interesting. So I'll talk to you about this, because this seems like you'll appreciate it then. So what I noticed about the students that had shifted in the last about three years of, of that time. So by 2011, the shift had happened so that anybody who was an A student was generally somebody, and there's only a handful in the class, I would say. These are undergraduate students. Those A students almost always would become my interns at my company. Like I'd offer an internship because they were really good at what they did. They were enthusiastic. They were, you know, they would follow through on the commitments. The last couple years, I didn't invite the A students to be my interns because they either were not going to get an A because they missed too many classes. And when they were missing too many classes, it was because they were having personal issues or because they were just acting like their work was good, but they just were having a very difficult time sort of in the world. And it would be somebody that would be hard to have in an office environment sort of with professional requirements, like in terms of not just not just like deadlines and, mm. you know, meeting certain needs, not as how you dress mm -hmm. or look or anything like that. And I was like, this is weird that there's been a shift. And this is how I identified it. And maybe you have mm -hmm. a different way of seeing it. But this is from, from my perspective. When I was in college, everybody, I think nearly everybody in college is, you know, you're, you're trying to define who you are. You're trying to understand where you fit in the world. You're making decisions about your life in terms of your persona. And I think that when we did that, it was externally focused in many ways. So we were like becoming activists and we were participating in the world. And it's very external. And then later in your life, you start to deal with your internal stuff and you mm. sort of come around to that, you know, your midlife crisis or whatever. Later in life, you sort of start to go, hey, let me solve this thing that's maybe I haven't resolved internally. And what I observed was that the students were resolving this stuff internally in college, which is amazing, right? You get into it earlier, but not great for taking advantage of the college experience or for preparing yourself to go into the workforce immediately. It seemed like they were sort of caught up in their own heads in a way that was probably ultimately would be healthy, but was difficult for them to take full advantage of what they were experiencing. 
That was my hmm. sense of it, my interpretation of it. I say more because I'm still not fully tracking with you. Like, what were they not taking advantage of that you feel like they missed out on by being internally stuck in their heads? Well, I think that, like I said, I think they were missing classes. I think they were not completing work because they were sort of like, I'm having like... A breakdown. Yeah, I don't know who I am or what I'm doing. And I don't even know, you know, I'm trying to figure out my my sexuality, my gender. I'm trying to understand all this stuff. And it's a lot to do. And college, is, I didn't... It didn't seem like it was the place for it anymore because they were so caught up in it. They were unable to really focus on the opportunity that school offered in terms of the learning from a teacher, being in a classroom setting, doing assignments, that kind of structure, which is to say that maybe the system is just broken and is wrong, right? I'm not, so I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that that Hmm. system that's in place for a long time wasn't serving them. Can it, so is that fair? So I'm not putting it on them as they were doing anything wrong. I think that their upbringing in this new digital environment, the opportunity to sort of be more self-focused and internally focused is great and probably will make them healthier people down the line. But it made for a poor college experience is my my take. I left to do some other stuff. And then I got asked to teach again to art students. And I had the worst teaching experience I'd ever had when I came back. And I'd never experienced anything like it. The students were so aggressively pushing back in a way that I just couldn't even fathom. Like, cause I, I, and it was interesting. It had to do with digital media. It had to do with social media because I was encouraging them to really put some like, you know, experimental stuff out and try things and just play and be playful with this. Because to me, this is not part of who I am, this medium. You know, I use it for, pl- I try stuff, throw things, but it was like, that was who they were. And it was like, I was questioning their like core humanity i don't know what the word for it, but like this some core principle about themselves and i was like hmm. and they were and, and t- because of that they were really aggressive towards me like i had threatened them in some real like harmful and i was like what is happening right now because i've already experienced and witnessed like social media platforms coming and going like yeah. if you guys are identifying with this and putting this yourself into it i would be like do you remember vine like People were Vine stars and it doesn't exist anymore. Like, do you want to invest in this way and at your age in being like, I have a persona that is like this and this is my brand already. Like they were very committed to like, this is my brand identity or my, you know, like aesthetic. And I was like, who knows their aesthetic at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Like you don't have it yet. Like you're still figuring it out and you've got time to continue to figure out and change it. It changes Mm -hmm. for a long, continues to change throughout a lifetime. And there was a rigidity around it and a real resistance that was like shocking. And it wasn't everybody. And, you know, you have to watch it because I think what happens is there's a small number of people who are very aggressive and set the tone and transform a class around their energy. And so we had some students who were just horrendous. I mean, to the point of like cyber bullying me. And I was like, what's going on right now? Like, I was like, I don't even know how to deal with this type of interaction because I'm used to coming in as someone who's presenting expertise on a topic that you want to learn. If you you want, you know, like I'm presenting this information because I've got some experience and knowledge. And if you don't have that experience and knowledge, it's not that you don't have anything or you're not real people or valid humans or something, but the, the fact is, is that if you don't even believe that I have something to offer you, it's a very bad educational experience right if you're like you got nothing which was the attitude it was like kind of like you know what are you going to tell us and i was like i don't know i've been working for 20 years i probably know something like hmm. you don't want to hear it that's on you but uh yeah it was and it was to the point where like one of the things i had them do was this I had to do something daily and it was very like f- playful and experiential mm-hmm. and one of the things was like 
make something inspired by a joke. And I had kids come to me like, we don't tell jokes anymore. They're memes. And I was like, you know what? That's ridiculous. Like you've told jokes. And like there was, so again, it was like an attitude like we are different than you old people. We do memes. I'm like, I know memes. They're not that funny. Like, Neither are jokes. Like, it's just about playfulness, about humor. You could use meme instead of the word joke if that's what you need. But, like, you know the word joke. Don't act like this was, like, these don't exist to us anymore. So, you know, it's just that kind of, yeah. So it was it was a very toxic experience and environment. I was just like, all right, I'm going to back away from y'all not doing this kind of teaching anymore. And I went back to teaching eventually, but in a business school setting, which is funny because that was an art school. So it was really weird because I'm an artist. I, my parents are artists. I grew up in the arts environments. And to just feel like I have to leave art school and go to business school. And there that was a welcoming environment because I really? was- Really? Yeah, I know. It doesn't sound strange. Like talk about the like weirdest thing is to sort of spend time as an activist and a punk you know, punk rock community and, and then like end up working for corporations and being in a business school. Yeah. Like not what I expected, but they're very open to new stuff and they're looking to sort of rethink how they d- are doing what they're doing. And it's less of an attitude of like, we know it all and what do you have to offer us? It was more like, wow, this is new stuff for us and we don't know how to do this. So we'd like your expertise. And so, yeah, of course. Right. Because at that point you offer them something that they think they have no knowledge of. Right. So and, then and, they and, listen. And, yeah, exactly. So yeah. I'm, cur- I'm curious though, because obviously I did not go to art school. And so I don't really even know what art school looks like from an outsider perspective of like, what do you teach artists? And I know that's a shitty question <laughs> because it's like huge. Yeah. And I think, you know, it depends, right? And it depends on the art school and depends on the subject matter. You know, some of these, a lot of these kids were studying more like commercial arts. So things where they were planning on getting into a career where they're going to do illustration or video game design or something a little more practical than sort of fine arts where it's just like, good luck. I don't know what you're going to do with this degree, but you've learned about it. But in any of those settings, you know, there's, there's sort of a couple things. There's sort of history, historical knowledge, right? You're going to get okay. like the history of whatever you're doing. You're going to get technical skills learning how to use certain software or uh, materials, you know, techniques around those, you're going to get, you know, some opportunity for critique with uh, theoretically people who've worked in the field and can give you some feedback on that experience. And then there's sort of some professional sort of experience knowledge around that might be portfolio development or studio practices. Uh, This class was about entrepreneurship. And so it was really about like, how do you sort of start to interact with the real world with the stuff you're learning? And the attitude was, we're going to be brilliant, successful people at what we do because of at 2021, 20, we got it. There's a, I don't know the number, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people graduating with that same skill set that they got yeah. at the same time. And the likelihood that you are going to be the like star standout when you haven't, when you went to school for four years for this, I mean, it's just, it's rare. It's rare to be the person right. who gets out and just like, ta-da, I got the job and I'm the winner. Because there's not a lot of those jobs. So you're really looking at how well do you work with other people? Like if you want a mm. job at a, at a business that does it, like you can't do video game on your own, design on your own. That's not a one person deal. So can you get along with other people? Can you get take direction? Not fun stuff, but it's right. the real world. Or can you be an entrepreneur and start your own thing? Which you should, but it's really hard to do right out of school. It's weird, though, because as a younger person, you see YouTube stars just pop out of nowhere. So I think that might be the concept, right? Yeah. And I think, um, think, you know, America has done a great job of sort of telling you that this is the model, right? Whether it's 
YouTube stars or the lottery. It's like instant success. (laughs) Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And like you can do anything. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's all an illusion that's designed to support a system when in fact, you know, anybody, not anybody, a good majority of of the people who are wealthy were wealthy from wealthy families. The, The you know spontaneous wealth generation doesn't really exist. But the system, you know, YouTube certainly makes it look like anybody can do it. And anybody can, but it's really takes a ton of work. And I and I've always said to people, look, any success you see of mine or anybody's, anybody you see successful that you want to be like, they have done a ton of work before they just suddenly appeared in front of you. And it may seem like magic that they are now here and super successful. But if you follow it back, they may have been people who as children started and had parents helping them and developed all this stuff very intentionally and have spent a long time on a path to get to where they got when they suddenly appeared. Right. Consistently across the board. And if you interview anybody who does that stuff, they'll tell you it was a ton of work. They worked very hard. They wanted it for a long time. They pointed themselves toward it and did a lot of work towards it. And that still doesn't guarantee you'll get it. Exactly. And I think there is an expectation of sort of like they deserve it in some way. And I think education, college education feels like the students now feel like they're buying something and that they're owed a certain set of things for that money spent. Yeah. And that is not how college was before. Yeah, but I'm in so much debt. I know. And it's terrible. And the system, again, super broken. Shouldn't cost that much. Should be free. But that consumer model... Where mm-hmm. it's sort of like, I paid this much for these credits, so I, d- I expect these certain results back from you, the teacher, I think does the student a disservice. Because I think in the end, like, it's about what you put into it and what you take out of it. And like, as a student, I mean, look, a, a crappy teacher is a crappy teacher. And if they don't serve you, it's terrible. But they're presenting it. But if you don't take it and use it and put effort into it, you're nothing. You don't get anything from it anyway. You can have the best teacher and have right. nothing out yes. of it and i think you know certainly i don't i'm not saying I'm the best teacher but i thought i think i have good stuff to offer but if you can't hear it you can't apply it it's useless and i've i've said that to students where i was like why are you here if you don't want to be here and that was one of the students that was terrible to me finally told me like well i should i don't want to be here and i want to graduate early and i hate this and i hate that i'm spending my money and i'm like okay well you're taking it out on me individually for this ex- set of experiences you've had that i'm not responsible if i'm an adjunct who was asked as a favor to come in and teach and thought I was sharing something that yeah. people wanted and discovered that, like, I came into an environment where you really don't want that. And hmm. look, far be it for me to force myself on you. I don't, you don't need, if you don't need me, you don't need me. You don't know, it's fine. Maybe you go in the world and you discover later that, gee, I, maybe I need that now. It's fine. I, I, I always felt like I was one of the rare people who got out of high school, went right into college, enjoyed the experience and was glad to do it. And then was happy when it was done and wanted to go in the world. I, I think the vast majority of students I encounter would be much happier if they took off for two years right out of high school and worked a full-time job. And then honestly, like discover how the world works. See if you yes. like it. If you like it, keep doing it. You don't need a degree. If you don't like it and you're like, gee, I wish I could spend time thinking and absorbing information and co- collaborating, then come to college and then like be all in. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been in classrooms where there's, you know, 80% of the people there are just zoned out. 10% are actively like, doing poorly like failing at it and and then 10 percent are like we are very enthusiastic about being here we want to grab all we can yep have you experienced that i mean is that your experience in college did you do you see that around i you? i am the nerd that like you're the 10 but 10%. i and i've been thinking about that a lot of like how did i get to that level of being that person 
And there was definitely a science teacher who once looked at me in high school and said, everything that you do from here on out is for you and for no one else. You paying attention in class selfishly is to better my future. And once I realized like, oh shit, like if I actually learn, this is going to help me. Like I'm not doing this anymore for the expectation that I have to get an undergrad degree or any of this other stuff. And like, I just went super selfish. And then at that point, yeah, I'm going to pay attention because it's for my benefit. Like, I what? sat in the front row because I was like, why am I here? Like, yeah. why am I going to be sitting in the back row zoning? I mean, why? Who's, yeah. whether it's your money or your parents' money or somebody else's money that you're spending on this experience, that's money that's being thrown away if yep. you don't care about what's happening. Then don't go. Exactly. And I think when you work a minimum wage job doing something that you hate and realizing <laughs> you that- You might have a different perspective on college. Yeah, that could be your job forever. I worked at a bakery just like bagging bagels and putting on stickers on it and I just hated it so deeply. And you have that one experience and you're like, nope, I will do whatever it takes to not have this be the rest of my life. I always loved my older students. They were they generally were like, we get why we're here. We're going to we're going to take everything we can from you, which is what you should do. Do you know uh, Sister Karita Kent? No, but I'll write it down. You should look her up. She was a nun who became an activist artist. Cool. Art teacher. And she has these rules for the classroom that are fantastic. And one of them is the student's job. And I'm not quoting directly, but it's basically like to to pull everything out of the teacher and and the other students. Yes. Yes. And then the teacher's job is to pull everything out of the students. But but it's not, I mean, but generally your adjunct teachers are there because they've got real world experience and are, you know, interesting people who you know, are taking time out of their lives to work for very little money. And I think that was the thing I had to explain to the students. Like, I get paid very little when I teach. It is the the least paying job I have if I'm going into a classroom, which means I'm doing it because I'm passionate and care about you. And talk about sucking the life out of somebody when they come in and try to give you this something because you're passionate and care and excited and they get the reverse from it. And it just, you know, it just drains the energy. It's like, okay, I guess I don't care anymore. Like that... That's mm-hmm. what, I don't know. That was, it was like, I told you, it was a bad teaching experience and it was weird because I, like I said, I taught for a long time and that was yeah an anomaly, I guess. But then it also, again, just re- reminded me that there is this shift happening, which is, I guess, where we came to that piece. But yeah, I don't know. What's your take it's, on all this? Yeah. I just want to say I'm sorry too, because that sounds extremely difficult. It was bad. I was very, very upset for a while. Yeah. I mean, you're coming in then, like, as you said, getting paid not what you really should be and donating this time to your students truly and the effort and the energy just to get that resistance back must have been so painful. It was just, it was bizarre. It was shocking. There was a co-teacher for that specific class who was younger than me and they loved what he had to say and he was much more accessible, I think. And I just came in as this, I don't know, they were just like, I think they'd had some older male teachers that, I don't know, they kind of just sort of had an attitude about, like, this is this other thing, this other group of people that are now, like, kind of, yeah, there was a student who stood up and was like, I have to, I have to defend this other student because you're critiquing their thing. And, you know, they're very sensitive and speaking for another student. I was just like, I, they can speak for themselves. Like, what's going on right now? Like, you, and then another student who, like, argue with me and then put on headphones and then ran out of the class and was like, well, I have sensory problems. And so I need to be able to hear this music. And I was like, okay, well, you didn't tell me that when you came into the classroom. Like, you just walked out on, put headphones on when I was talking. You're like, I'm not against you having issues that you need to deal with, whatever, how your anger issues are, but you got to talk to your teacher about this. You can't, it's like, anyway. 
they seem sensitive then to like any sort of critique yes it was it and i and you know again in an art school environment typically critique is part of the process and so you you know and and i make it very personal we we talk through each person's work and we give feedback positive negative here's what we saw this is where it could use improvement it's not personal critique but i think they felt it as personal critique and it was very like that's unacceptable now maybe i don't know yeah, it's interesting because where we started this conversation, I think you were talking about the divide between, you know, your boundaries of how much you present of yourself in the space or the public media. But people who are younger have really started out with their whole life being in that space. So it's almost like you're, you have a persona in the online world versus right. like younger people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Younger people having themselves in yeah. the online yeah. world. And like that, and like, it, I don't, you know, I don't have the pretty words to describe what this is, but it's almost, it's not as connected for older generations where I feel like as a younger person, I'm directly related to what I'm putting out. Yeah. As That's my dangerous. identity. Yeah. I honestly feel bad for y'all in this way, because I don't have a permanent record of everything I did when yeah. I was young. A good chunk of my youth there is represented by like a half dozen photographs. Like there's literally years where I might have two photographs that represent that year. Whereas you will have sound and video documentation permanently online somewhere forever. Yes. Of every dumb thing you've done. I know. Which is bad and good. I think the good part, I thought, because I heard this one time, it was like, there's going to be a point at which every, you know, presidential candidate every you know person running for office will have will have this digital history online and so at some point everyone's just going to have to admit to having whatever smoke marijuana whatever it is done whatever like because it'll all be there there will be no denying it anymore and i think that and maybe except the wealthy people can still try to scrub it or something <laughs> yes but on the other hand there's a there was a freedom in being able to sort of like experience life and I do feel really bad about that because I think you've had to decide who you were a lot earlier. And I think that's maybe why you're dealing with the mental stuff earlier, because you've had to put out a persona earlier. Like we could sort of be like fetal practice people for a while because we weren't presenting a version of ourselves to the public at all. I mean, it was rare where you were in the newspaper. You know, somebody I had my picture in the newspaper when I was a kid one time, you know, teaching my sister to ride a bicycle. And that was like, we, you know, you put that on the wall, like, look. I am real. There's a photo of me in the newspaper. I, I don't know that we've even gotten close to grasping the psychological effect that has on generations of children. No, we don't. What we do know, I mean, that Netflix documentary that came out about social media. Did you watch this? I haven't, no. Uh, I forget what it's called, but I will plug it in the show notes because apparently I don't remember. But it talked about the dangers of social media and how we are seeing an increase in younger children's suicide rates that is really consistent with about 2013, 2014, right when Facebook and some of these large... Yeah, no, I know. This, this, is, a, this is very much so a thing. I mean, and we... This is a whole social experiment now at this point like what are people of my generation going to be like at you 60? are literally lab Who knows? you're literally yeah. lab rat. and it is unfair and i really because here's the thing like the technology isn't bad and right. when the internet and you know if you're not conscious of this like when the internet came out it was like oh my gosh this is the opportunity for us to like fight back because anybody can be on here and anybody can do anything and the corporations don't own it like there was this amazing freedom at the beginning of the internet that was like full of potential but it quickly very quickly turned into a corporate space a controlled space you know i mean look the the level of power amazon and facebook have is is 
insane. It's insane how much they control. They shouldn't. The internet is is infinite. We should have a billion awesome stories you could go, you know, a billion ways to share. But no, it's just gone down and down and down. And like, I had a lot of success with blogging. And then that, you know, that sort of vanished when it all shifted over to social media platforms. And I always told people, I own that blog. I control it. Even though somebody else owns that space. Like, that was my, my space, not my space. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it becomes my space, the corporate entity, right? And now they control your content. And then they decide the value of your, you know, and ask you to build audiences for them and, and make they make money off of it. And that's, yeah, if that's all you know, this is all very new. And I think what's hard to people understand, it's like, it's like talking about books, 20 years after the printing press was invented. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, think right. about how long right. books have been around, right? The internet has not been around that long. And so to be like, or and social media even less. So to be like, you know, iPhones haven't been around that long. Like, literally apps on your phones have been around since, what, 2007, yeah. 8? Yeah, something like around that. there. So that's it. Yeah. That amount of time we went from zero to where we are now. Which is insane. Which is insanity. Which is then like the rise and fall of all kinds of stuff. That's such a short period of time. And we have not developed the the tools, the education, the laws, yeah. the health care. None of it has been developed around it. So we've just sort of had this unfettered insanity at breakneck speed. And we've been put all our children into that and been like, good luck. Sorry, you don't have any skills to deal with this. It is the purest drug because this is designed yeah. to tap that little thing in your head that you know that yes. says pleasure uh, dopamine. Yes, little, dopamine right likes hearts please more of that and yeah to fight back against that with no skill with no tools i mean yeah of course people are floundering of course suicides rates are it's horrible like that's you know and then if you keep your children out of it then you're a luddite mm -hmm. i don't know but i mean what's the alternative because it, the weirdest thing for me is to see you know anarchist punks telling me to, on talking about on instagram about whatever and i'm like you literally are on instagram telling us about this so like how it you like this is where we're at like our public forum is a completely corporate controlled space yeah i mean i'm on instagram so and, right, I, as and like, I, look i mean i, yeah, exactly. I left That's facebook but i stayed on instagram even though they're owned by Facebook, because I kind of was like, I don't know what to do. Like, exactly. I can just vanish. And that's what it feels well, like, you know. Right, right, right. I mean, f for me personally, what has helped is at least uh, turning off notifications. So that way that you don't have that constantly coming in. Because it's interesting, you take a few, you know, days off of the social media platforms, and you'll watch the notifications increase. Hmm. When I would go off Instagram for a while, I delete it on, on my phone or something. Then I'd get an email that da da da, -da has yeah. posted a picture which i never get when it was on my phone so they're just like oh you've stepped away come back yeah. and it's gross it's it's but i mean yeah it's all built on psychological understanding of the neurobiology of our brains of how can we wire these systems to get these people to spend more time here i mean we were we were railing about it when it was just like advertising to children on television i mean yeah. it was like oh saturday morning cartoons are bad because they're selling toys to you and now you're like Oh, that stuff is so sweet and naive. Like we we had no idea what we could be doing to children. You know? Right. It's insane to think that when you do take it, you know, step away from it or I'll take it off my phone, it's almost like an itch of like, oh, like I, I need to check social media. And that level of internalization is terrifying. On my biological level of how I exist in the world, if I don't check things or have my phone on me, I don't feel like I'm living anymore. And wow. that is inherent Yeah. So my generation got, you know, social media when I was in high school-ish. So I cannot even 
fathom the kids that are five, six, that I see having Instagrams and what that is going to do to them. Because I was one of the last generations got any bit of like potentially normal childhood where I didn't have a phone, like didn't have that life. Yeah. Isn't that weird to think? Because you're you're young and to be like, oh, you still got a glimpse of life. A glimpse. Of that last little second before we all plugged into the Matrix. Yes. I've had conversations with older people about this of just like, what is that divide and how does it shift how we connect with people and so many different things? Because ultimately, this has rewired how we understand ourselves, exactly what we were talking about earlier of, I have a me here in the real life, but I also have a persona me out there that I consider a part of me. And so people understand me through what I put out there. And so all my friends see me through that. So it's almost like this you know but are you so are you trying to put an authentic like is your goal to be more authentic online like are you like oh i got to put more personal like make this online version of me more really me is that a goal i think that my like higher self would be like yeah of course but like truly am i putting on there that you know i had a really rough week and i you know had this struggle or this or that and this shitty thing happened to me no Right? Like, yeah. obviously, you're still that- controlling, right? You're still, it's still, yes, a oh, for sure. Thing. Yes. Some of the th- things I talked about on this podcast of getting an abortion, stuff like that, I posted publicly to be open and vulnerable about that experience to connect with other people. But like, it's still done with a cute picture <laughs> that I picked out of like multiple other pictures, you know? Right. It's, it's still curated. It's a yeah. curated life. And it's, we don't get to do that with real life. I mean, no, we do in some sense. A, I mean, obviously, right. you still choose what clothes you wear and how you speak to people in public. But if you blur what public and private is on a space like that, I mean, again, I have friends on social media who I feel like I am hearing about every moment of every day and every personal interaction and every very, very deeply private thing. You know what's interesting, too, for having a real conversation? I do feel like older adults typically use social media in that way. Like, I see my parents and people who are older, like, typically spurring more of, like, the real, real details of, like, this is what I actually did compared to, like, people my age who tend to, like, talk about it but abstractly. We don't put out all the details. Or, like, people like my dad will be like, oh, I wanted to take my girlfriend to this concert, but we broke up up the other night so i took someone else like <laughs> right you're like did you not put that on the internet exactly i'm just like what like people my age would never put that because we have this level of a wall so it's interesting like yeah what do you see when you say that like tell me more because it might actually be very different than what i see well i just wonder about that if you are feeling like your online persona is you Yes. A version, a part of you, right? Because I don't. I feel like my online persona is purely an avatar. It is just a, is a skin that I manipulate. That sounded gross. Uh, I get what you're saying. (laughs) Um, I guess that's what I'm wondering is like, if you're feeling like it's some authentic you, that you're still highly curating, right? You're still choosing this angle for your selfie because you look better and and making, doing this angle. You know, all those choices means that that's a level of self-awareness and an intense scrutiny of yourself that is not healthy. Mm -hmm. Like, I I can't even argue like, maybe it's good. I don't think it is good because they're like, here's how you access your friends. But your friends don't get to see you if you don't play the game right. Because you'll actually be hidden from them. It's almost like a gambling game. Some of these people are gambling their personal lives and all of these details to become the next like Kim Kardashian built on social media. Like that same level of just like, here's all my shit so you can get wrapped into it and sh- yeah. and follow me so that you do buy my products so that you do follow my art and all of that. It's just like part of, I think, marketing these days is really just selling your whole self. Oh, yeah. And the yeah, the brand of what those 
Stephen's and yet I would argue that. that Kim Kardashian is a fiction, you know, the version we know is a fiction, right? That's that's purely created. And then coming back to the concept of people like me who see social media as a reflection of ourself, truly, this might be part of the problem with people in my generation, right? Is like when we do have that level of control over a part of ourselves, because we do internalize it to that degree, how do we handle the world, which inherently does not ever allow us that level of control? And I think mm. we don't. Like we're mm. struggling. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because That's a good way to put it. And so then if you get pushed back in real life, there's no ability, there's no tool set for responding to it. And and I do think about this even in levels of like, so sometimes when I go out to places and hearing music that I'm not curating, it annoys me. Wow, that is fascinating. That's interesting that that if you're so used to curating all of your life, that the real life is is just intolerable, which maybe sort of lines up with what's happened to us as a culture in America as a society in terms of Mm -hmm. like the polarization and the inability for people to like find any common ground anymore is like if everyone's used to 100% controlling access what they see and how they see it and how they interact that like there's just no way to coalesce around anything that's other right interactions are going to be really hard with people think about it right so if all your interactions or god a majority of your interactions are spent on text social media where you get the level to look at that and respond and take the time to reflect on how you want to present yourself back into the world the real world and normal conversation does not allow you that time (laughs) it sucks yeah yeah exactly so just think about i mean i mean social anxiety now that is really fascinating like i really think that's worth thinking about more Hmm. because I remember when I finally, when I was first like, there's something wrong with Facebook, was when I started sharing some stuff where people were like getting, you know, I just had always shared whatever. I used to have a newsletter, a blog, and then I was like, okay, well, on Facebook, I'll do the same thing. I'll share articles that interest me and topics that are, in, you know, here's the thing that I'm, but I would get like feedback that was very aggressive about it from certain people like, this is da da da, and they'd be arguing, and I'm like, I don't want to argue, like, what's going on? And so I started talking to people offline. I'd say like, well, let me talk to you or, you know, like private message. I'd be like, what's going on? Basically, one person explained it to me. And this was a while ago. This was many years ago. But it was the first time I understood what was happening, which was they said, well, it's on my page. Your thing is on my page. It's on, you know, it's my feed. And I saw your thing that I don't like. And it's like I had taken a crap in their yard. And they were like, I don't want that. And I was like, oh, I get that. Like, that's your yard and you don't want my political sign in your yard. That's how that space created that mistake, which was that their sense of the, it wasn't the public commons anymore. It was their space. And I was invading it with my stuff they don't like. So then what you do, go block that guy or argue with them or delete it. And you curate it, curate and curate until you get now algorithmic, you know, black holes that, that turn you into... QAnon conspiracists. I mean, like... They actually talk about that. Yeah. That's actually a thing. There's... uh, I think the New York Times came out with this opt-ed on one of their podcasts talking about the rabbit hole that YouTube creates Mm -hmm. of just when you go from recommended video to recommended video. It just takes you worse and worse and worse and worse. And what's really weird is that, you know, there's this whole thing about, like, older people who, you know, might have been into, like, health stuff and you know like nutrition whatever and they've fallen into the QAnon black hole like it it sort of like sucked them in from this place of being like interested in alternative health and once you're in a place of like i want to know about stuff that's not mainstream it just sort of went and then you were down there that is what all of these things encourage right and Mm -hmm. so that when i saw that very first encounter where i was like what's happening here oh the perception of what's happening is i'm invading their space when i'm sharing what i want to share which means you just are going to 
avoid that, right? Or you're going to be all in on like, I'm, I'm going to argue and fight with everybody, which I don't like to do. I'm not a confrontational person in that way. And so I would just like back up, back up, back up. Never mind. I'm not going to share anything anymore. And I was like, I've been a political activist my whole life. And I don't want to talk about any of these issues because I don't want to be attacked. I get we don't have the same politics, but we could be in the past. We would have been in the same room or to have some form of, you know, some ability to converse about it. I know. I feel like I, I just I'm remembering a quote. I Jefferson, someone back in the day who talked about the importance of different views of taking that into your understanding of your knowledge. And that's truly the most powerful way to understand anything at all is to acknowledge your opponent. And I don't know yeah, how we got into this space of where people just refuse that. Part of me wonders thinking about the internet more is it has created spaces where you can have a lot of group think and you can have people who reflect your deepest values and so when anyone else com combats at that you feel like you have this invisible army of people that look and feel the same way that you do yeah q anon those people are gonna f find all those people and so then they're that's how they feel so angry about any other thought because they know the truth is in this community they've found how do you combat that i have no idea I mean, so I saw an article that just said that it was basically saying, is politics the new religion? And they're saying that like church going is below, it's at its lowest point ever in America. And yes. there's, you know, a rise in, in atheism, but also just in general, like people just aren't getting their religion that way. And so they're sort of investing in politics the way they would have invested in, in religion, yeah. which is, you know, a community of like-minded people who support you. But, be, but it, when it becomes that, then it becomes a life or death thing where, you, you know, that level of like, my my correct answers aren't just correct. It is how life is. Yeah. So I do think that politics could be the new religion. I didn't read that article specifically, but I come from a conservative background. My father specifically supports Trump openly. And because of those views, I don't speak to him. Yeah. And I would say I take that level of religious stance almost of just righteous. Like, if you do not understand why Trump is problematic, then you do not see the world the same way I do, like a religious structure. And because of that, I don't feel safe. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, thank you. But like, no, because it's, I mean, you're, you're among many. I mean, that is not, yeah. that is a common experience. Um, yeah. I obviously talk about this a lot with a lot of people in my family. I'm very lucky. My, my parents are very liberal and they've been mm. activist artists and, you know, sort I'm of so like, jealous. I believe me, I know I, it's the rare, rare thing. <laughs> I mean, because my wife's parents are very conservative, live in the country, probably voted for Trump. Don't talk about politics with them, basically, you know. Uh, yep. So I know it's extremely rare. I'm obsessed with this idea. Do you know what um, extinction burst is? Mm -mm, no. So it was a term I learned around um, animal training, which mm -hmm. was this idea that, and I love talking about this because I just think it's, I don't know. For me, it's very Do relevant. It. Yeah. So this idea that if you're trying to change a behavior in an animal, theoretically in a human too, I guess, because humans are animals, right? So as you get closer to that behavior change, let's say the dog scratches the door to get in. You don't want the dog to do that. So you ignore, ignore the dog and the dog scratches you know scratch 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 and you're like oh just stop scratching if you let the dog in the behavior stays right it doesn't it ever stops well what happens is if you wait they start scratching and then they go ah, and they scratch extra crazy and you're like ah, oh, fine i'll let you in but if you waited past that moment mm. then it would be over right that's the last attempt the like we're gonna try doubly hard we're gonna be extra aggressive and it is the behavior that happens before the change happens and so it feels very much, and I, I mean, it's happened for a long time, but it feels very much like we're experiencing that in America, Ooh. which is this sort of 
aggressive over the topness to sort of what we're, we're we're experiencing around the sense that white male power is about to be completely overturned in terms of just sheer numbers right just mm-hmm. but what do they do in response to that but the the most white male terrible that they can be like the ver- mm-hmm. the worst version of right it's the trump version that and it will and maybe and it maybe we're not done you know which terrifies me i thought that was yeah. the bottom but like it felt like the bottom one was george w bush and Boy, were we wrong. Now that guy looks right. quaint, right? And so it's like, they'll it'll keep going down. But like, there are also fewer and fewer supporters of it. Like in the end, they're a very loud minority on so many levels, right? Because I would say generally, generationally, each generation gets a little more overall, a little more liberal. Yes, a few will slip through and some kids are going to be highly conservative and you've got your terrible people who still support Trump when they're young. But- a lot of it is just because they don't question what they've been given from their families. As far as I'm concerned, it's right. that gets passed down and they support it, right? You stay religious because your parents are religious. But generally what we're seeing is, you know, generational shift towards being more open, more accepting. Hey, let's talk about gender as a spectrum, which we didn't do previously. Like we're right. much more, gay marriage is totally fine now. That was not fine not too long ago by a lot of people, you know, and so we keep mm-hmm. moving forward. We hit our, it, it's a pendulum, so it swings back and forth. So we get moments where it's going to feel worse. But there's no point in history that you would like to go back to and mm-hmm. live in. <laughs> no. Right? You. No, as a woman, no. As a woman, do not. Anybody who is a person of color. No. Does not. Even, honestly, white men shouldn't either because even the king lived in squalor. Like, right. you want to go back to Middle Ages? It smelled bad. You died young. Your teeth hurt. You were getting, you know, it was horrible. There's So there's no better time in history than right now. And it will continue to get better. And this will look terrible, too. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I think that when people look back on Trump and all the things that were allowed, it's going to be atrocious. Yeah, absolutely. But we're better than we've ever been. As bad as it is. I don't know if that's glass half full or glass half empty, but... Yeah, the fight's never over. We still have so many large structures of oppression. And then, yeah, it's it's holding that nuance that, yes, this is the best it's ever been. And it's also the worst it's ever been. Because with the trajectory of the future going better, we're always in that middle. Which is why you can be happy and also angry at the same time and not let go of the fight. So, I mean, and the extinction birth thing, I guess, initially comes from cells. Like, cells have this ability to do that, too, where they can, like, pump out, like, this last bit of energy, I guess. There's some connection to it. You have to look that up, that piece up. But But in some ways, I see that as, like, if we can kind of, like, you know, stick to it, that group will eventually die out. Like, literally die out. Like, literally, there just won't be enough of them. But they are maintaining power extremely well. You know what's hard though? I okay, so sometimes I feel the same way that you feel of like, okay, religious affiliation is decreasing. In general, we are becoming more accepting of other viewpoints and liberal. And then when we had the election, do you remember how close it was? It was like 48%, 49% still voted for Trump, which is insane. Okay, right. So exactly. So part of me says, okay, it's getting better. And I guess you could look more specifically at the politics of the demographics of the ages that we're voting for that. But how many people are voting in America still? What percent of America voted? Low. Right. So I mean, we still we're not even close to full participation. Plus, the suppression of votes is still very real. And it's always aimed at people of color. So you've got, you know, a a system that's only getting more well honed right now to make sure that a minority Yep. Controls the outcome of the election. But also keep in mind that as long as the electoral college is in place, the whole thing is screwed anyway. So 
But why does no, why, why did the Democrats never have the wherewithal to get rid of it? Like, that's what I don't understand. I was like, hey, you know, this is just serving the minority and making sure that like states that have, you know, that, that can control like the outcome right. of elections so that it's all rested in Florida, which is nonsense. Like right. that system, which was built very entire, very specifically because there was a distrust of the populace. Why does this still exist today? Right. And so now here we are like, yes, you've got a moment. We've got four years to make some progress, but they're doing a great job of making sure that next election, maybe this, that this past election was the last democratic election we will have in America. And I hate to be conspiracy theorists in that way, but I really, everything I've read from like real political theorists who are like educated people about elections are like, it's already happened and it's too late. And I'm like terrified by that. And I mean, it, it, we saw it coming from a long way away. I don't I don't know that the Democrats have the wherewithal to, to, to do the things they need to do to stop this. It doesn't seem to be the case. Well, right, because when you take the step out of all of it, right, if we want to complain about everything is like it's the politics is and all of the money and the capitalistic structures that support the different political groups, the political yeah. leaders, blah, 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 blah. Right. So like at that point, it feels like, yeah, how can you change the whole structure when it requires really a dismantling of capitalism and people <laughs> right. at the t- it right. does, look, right? Hey, this is supposed to be an anarchy podcast, right? It's- it is so we're on topic (laughs) (laughs) but you know here's the here's the debate i have which is that like i don't believe we are set up to do that job i don't Mm -hmm. think in four years that we can dismantle the system that's here and i and i think it's always disingenuous to be like you know i'm very much frustrated by my anarchist friends who'd be like i don't vote because it doesn't matter and i'm like it does matter there is a difference between having a Trump or a Biden or Hillary or whoever. And, you know, like they can be as bad as whatever, but there is a difference. Like, look, I've been an activist. So here's the thing. I've been an activist for a long time. And and when I was younger, I was on the streets and, and going to protests and, mm-hmm. you know, being way more involved in direct action. And then as I got older, I do that less. And there was always the older people that were in part of the scene that would be like the, the, the people doing the theoretical stuff, the planning, the sort of long-term mm-hmm. thinking, and the younger people who were doing the fighting. Mm. and that makes sense that's the energy and so i think when i see the young folks today who are like super enthusiastic and active i love it thank you for being in the streets because i wasn't but it's not black and white even if it is black and white sometimes say more on that please (laughs) i mean yes there's right and wrong and yes there's you know i don't believe i don't think there's good and evil i think that's nonsense but i do think that like you can look at the situation with the distance and be like, gee, the people, you know, opening hoses on black people were wrong. There is no question about it. No one right now can be like, that was okay. But at the time, there were some people who were like, this is okay. And they were allowed to talk about it on in mainstream press. Like that was a totally fine thing, you know? And now we're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And right now we have the same thing, right? People are like, hey, it's totally fine that the, you know, white people stormed the Capitol and didn't get retaliation for it, you know? And and in the future, we'll be like, no, that was crazy. And that was, I mean, we don't say that, right? We already know it was crazy, but it'll become common that everyone will yeah. be like, of course. Like, people will be like, of course, the civil rights movement was was the right thing. But not at the time. There were, there was, you know, some large percentage of the population were like, this is not the right thing. But things are complicated and nuanced, and there's a lot of gray area. And so while it's easy to be sort of fighting for the right thing and yelling, it's much harder to do the planning and, and, and incremental 
work that allows the real transformation to happen. And I don't believe that we're going to just sort of flip a switch and overturn the government and then have like a beautiful society in America. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen <laughs> easily, right? In any amount of time. Well, because I also what I see is that there are a lot of people who are planning for that. And those people are Trump supporters who have a lot of guns. Like they're not mm. people who are people I think are going to do a great job of leading a more holistic, happy, connected, thoughtful society. There are people waiting to wrest power and they're worse than in some ways what we have. Right. Maybe in many ways, because they want to be, you know, an actual dictator as opposed to like just a somewhat of a dictator, but who still has a little bit of checks and balances. Right. What I do think is important is that I feel like internet has potentially swung us into a different level of light on these issues that I hope to God makes people more aware of some of this stuff. You know, I feel like in previous worlds before the internet, there was levels of systematic oppression that you could have just lived unknowing of if living in your privilege, right, of just sure. going through the world and not seeking out that information. And because the access to social media is so prevalent now, like it's really hard to not know about the things that are going on in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about every recording of police violence that would not have existed and and how they only represent a fraction of what really happens, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. And right. yeah, that definitely would not have happened without that. And so that be able to spread information like the real memes, not the joke memes, but the real spreading of information, which is where that term came from originally, is super important. And it's amazing. And that is the potential of the technology. Right. And when exactly. we were in the 90s the late 90s when we were doing protests and the internet was new and we had indie media which was like local on the ground reporting that allowed you to really find out what was going on because we weren't like you know using social media to do it like it was an amazing thing because we'd never had that before before you were in the dark and you were truly like trapped and like you would not know and then suddenly we could share information and get real reports on the ground that were like here's what's really happening and here's where the police are right now and here's what's and that was phenomenal. So yeah, that was the real potential back then. And we saw it, but then it was like kind of has vanished. So maybe it's coming back up again. But again, yeah. who's controlling your access? I mean, all of this stuff is coming through Facebook, Instagram. Right. Thinking about the police brutality, that was a lot of videos that came out that were showing, you know, direct experience of what was actually happening that was not being covered in the news on social media. But then on the flip side, people like sex workers who are getting banned from social media for posting what they... Th so it is this dichotomy here of like actually getting the truth, but then still choosing to pick which truth we disclose about. And so it's like, yeah, it's not a free space, but it is helpful. And then it is deterrent because it ruins your sense of identity. And it's just like... <laughs> it's complicated. It's, and that's that's great, right? I mean, that's the answer. Is it isn't black and white. You, you get yeah. See? So you can't just be like, it's all bad. You, you know, if you walk away from it, you don't have access. Right. How old's your daughter? She is eight. And so she's young enough that she doesn't have a phone, or at least in our life, she doesn't. Maybe other people have eight-year-olds with phones, but I, she doesn't. They do. Oof. They do. She barely interacts with technology in the sense that, like, you know, we Zoom with people. And she's done a couple little teeny app things. But she's had very little experience compared to a lot of children with this stuff. Just like random question, does she still play a lot with dolls and other stuff like oh, that? Oh, yeah. She loves dolls. She's got a set of them that um, I don't even know if you know about them because, again, you might not be like it's younger, but it's it's basically Mattel put out these new ones called Creatable World. And it's really cool because they're just sort of like the in that Barbie realm, that scale. 
but they're um genderless and so you basically can decide what you want in any cool. one moment so you can change their hair and there's long hair and short hair and different clothes and there's and it's just up to you and you that's can, amazing yeah so they're very very much tapped into like where kids are right now and she loves them and she's they're all girls though she's like they're all girls uh <laughs> that's where she's at and uh so she had no lots of pretend play if, yeah, that sort of imagination play might go down as people's internet use goes up. Even at eight, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have phones. So you might be cultivating, you know, her development in a way that is allowing for this, especially being homeschooled. I don't know what her social life is like, but I feel <laughs> well, like... in the pandemic, very little. Well, right, but exactly. we have a lot of control over her experience of life. But I think we're trying to give her the tools that she ha- needs to, like, be able to decipher this stuff and, and know that it's not real and that it's sort of a choice rather than a requirement when do you think you're gonna let her have a phone <laughs> we told her 13 so we'll see we, we got years to decide about it so she does know it's funny though because for her like she watches you know stuff on netflix and disney plus and whatever and all, we don't have tv so she only has social she only has streaming tv and i was trying to explain to her like so talking about the gen- difference in in generations like she literally has no concept of not of, of tv that isn't on demand like she's never yeah. experienced other than my parents house but like terrestrial television that the show is on when it's on and you have Mm -hmm. to show up at that time doesn't exist to her and so she's like i want to watch the whole season right now like you know to be like that is a thing that didn't happen you could never do that and if you missed your show you missed it and then the next week you missed that episode you gotta watch the next one (laughs) and again i think this pulls back to that other concept i was talking about earlier of the level of control that we have over our experience right now is unparalleled in any other human experience of life that I can pick. Yeah, I want to watch the show and I want to binge the whole thing right now. And that is all at my fingers. I can listen to a whole album. I can watch whatever. And so how that is going to shape our development as humans to be able to function in spaces where we don't have control, I think is generally going to be very difficult. That's that. I think that is really worth diving deeper into. I think that'd be very interesting. You know, I've held on to all my records and CDs and, you know, periodically people be like, why don't you just get rid of those, whatever. And I was like, you know, what's interesting is I find frequently that there is not certain seminal albums online you cannot find them maybe on youtube you know really important albums in, a, in an artist's career are just not there right so then that doesn't exist i mean there's a great example of um uh de la soul's three feet high and rising which is you know maybe one of the best albums ever made and certainly a, one of the top five most important hip-hop albums of all time i'd argue there is no official version of it so again you can hear it on youtube but like in terms of any streaming media if you're like curating stuff or having recommendations there's a lot of people who will not have heard that album and it's uh, and it's because of licensing around samples and it has to do also with stuff like you know that label but other albums that were heavily sampled are are available and got through fine but that Mm. one is just tied up and interesting that's the experience that you have on that digital space is it feels like you have access to everything, but you don't. Yeah, even just talking about vinyls and music, I was thinking about the concept of sometimes when I want to listen to one song and it's inherently you, I mean, you can on the vinyl, but it's a whole different thing to get to that point. Oh, and like, sure. This even, I was thinking about this concept of curation is even changing how we ingest media. Like who actually listens to a whole album in the order that it was made anymore? Yeah. And people put a lot of effort into deciding that in the past, you know, and I would, I mean, you would sit there and hold the physical object and look at the record sleeve while you listen to the record and then hit the middle and you have to flip it over to hear the rest of it or or make, you know, mixtapes. I mean, I spent 
unbelievable amount of time making mixtapes like just finding individual songs choosing the order of them hitting pause and play adding little it was an art it was it was amazing amount of work but it was like you know that was the night you know that was what you did for the whole evening was was do that or maybe multiple evenings it's fascinating though because vinyls are actually taking off at a record sales which i mean some of that might be just like the coolness of the retro yes the next generation won't remember like I think vinyl probably, but like cassette. I know they're having a little cassette sort of little, yeah, they little are blip too. right yep. now. But I think they won't maybe the next generation because they won't even have a memory of them existing at all. Whereas people still kind of remember them and maybe are kind of feeling nostalgic about them. But I don't think people feel that way about eight tracks as much, maybe. I will say I do love the beauty of the surrender that a vinyl requires in yeah. the sense that like, yes, I am going to listen to this in full entirety. And this is what I'm going to. And I, I know, right? Surrender. Like, that's even a wild thing. But like from my, <laughs> yeah. you know, technological perspective, it is because I the only time I ever listen to a whole album like that is one, if I really love an artist or two, a vinyl. And even in that, it strips everything away from my phone. Like it is literally something hmm. I can do over here and disconnect from all of social media because even when I'm on Spotify and these other apps, then instantly without it's compulsory. Like I just go to another app while I'm listening to music mm-hmm. and like vinyls are one of the only times I actually can listen to that media and step away from technology. And if that level of joy comes back to any people in my world, like I hope vinyls keep taking off for that specific yeah. beauty. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to hold my breath because I don't think everyone's thinking about it on this caliber, but that's what I do and why I buy them. Look, I, I mean, as an artist and as a musician, like somebody who I try to buy vinyl just to support the artist. Because oh, like, yeah, when true, I listen yeah. to Spotify, you're not making any money. You know, yep. and so, you know, if I can give you a little bit of money through Hell physical yeah. media and then I got a thing that I can look at and touch and I can look at the pretty pictures yeah. of it and look at the color vinyl, I might not even play the record that much. I might still listen to it on Spotify, but like I like I own it makes me feel like I did <laughs> yes. something for that artist and it was worthy of this effort. You know, I put into it money. I put into it. That that stuff is important. And I, you know, I, I don't these days don't have the time to put into like really sitting and listen to records. Yeah. But I did when I was young. I mean, man, I would just spend so much time just so heavily focused on listening and paying attention in a way that I don't know. Yeah. I'm terrible too. I watch TV, which is streaming media, and I'm on my phone doing something else at the same time. I my know. wife comes up and says, what are you doing? I'm like, this is how I distract myself is I watch a thing yeah. and do a thing at the same time. So I like to find shows that I don't care about so I can have them on. That's, that's messed up. <laughs> like, Do you meditate? I'm trying to do it more. More. Um, I had a therapist suggest recently, just like sort of put in brain breaks in my day, and so I've been I've scheduled them, and I think it's a good idea. So it's like short, like two minutes, few times a day, or I stare at a tree, and and it's a good thing. It's amazing what I hear in my head when I do that. Like, exactly right, because I'm thinking about like when you're on your phone all the time, watching TV all the time. It's just like constant stimulus, and you know I'm existing in the world, cleaning. I'm listening to a podcast or this, this, this. Like when do we ever just sit in silence and listen to ourselves? I like doing crossword puzzles. I've been doing that recently. Mm, I'm really good. enjoying just sort of. That's a good meditative thing to me. That's awesome. Like a physical yeah. paper one, you know. Hell yeah, I rock climb. That gives me enough just to be like you're on the wall focus. Like anything that can pull you out of constant stimulus. And especially as an artist, I'm sure you know that that level of alone time and connection to yourself is how you create. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like if I make art and I'm sitting like there's a thing on my easel right now. There's two on the table over there. Like I've got another one lined up. Like I have to have contiguous hours of just staring at something to do it. Uh, And so always trying to carve that space out. Now, while I'm doing that, I might be listening to music or a podcast because it's 
delightful to do that paint while listening to something. But but that hours of contiguous time is rare and hard to carve out in my even my schedule where I'm supposed to be doing it as part of my work. Yeah, definitely. I was going to ask to close if you have any advice first off. I mean, we talked about a lot of large issues and I'm sure you have a lot of wisdom of how you do that work of carving it out. Yeah, not getting so sucked into your presentation online. Like, I don't know. There, I mean, if you have any comments, you can also say no. <laughs> but I just want to provide you the space that if you feel strongly there is something you'd want to say to people to hold that space for you. Yeah. Um. You know, I mean, the work that I do as a consultant around creativity and innovation mm-hmm. is really rooted in artist practices. And those practices are very specifically around sort of making intentionality around creative play and sort of mm-hmm. making sure that you are experimenting and doing and f- making physically making things on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And that if you trust the process, you get all kinds of good stuff out of it. But it's really just about showing up and doing stuff and doing stuff in the real world, like specifically. And so it's really like if you can make a, a habit of physically making things, physically do. I just wrote a thing about like, you know, having time to experiment that doesn't have to have a specific outcome to just try stuff, doing it more often, doing it regularly. Like it's an, it's an unbelievable what you get back from it. And it's exponentially more than you put into it, but it can be scary and daunting for a lot of people to do that. And so it's really about like what I say is sort of, or what we say as companies, like, you know, we want to lower the barrier to entry. So it's really like, don't have high expectations of what you're doing. Try to make it like the lowest hurdle to hop over. Yeah. So play, play exactly. And children learn through play. And so do adults, but we discount it when it comes to being an adult. So really it's like giving yourself a chance to play more regularly, not having that expectation of outcome, which again, social media has built in, right? So you're not allowed to play. And I think maybe again, to bring it back to that conversation I had, you know, I was encouraging my students to play on social media and they were not happy with it. Because you can't. Because everything you post is linked to likes and comments. And algorithms that will screw you up. And so, you know, that's dangerous. So it's punk rock maybe to be like, hey, mess up your algorithm. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, post some stuff you know won't get likes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Like do it. Like put a weird thing out there that isn't part of your brand and see what happens. Like you'll find out who is actually paying attention to you and like not just liking your stuff. Like somebody like, what happened to you? Exactly. Curious, do you have any thoughts on The Artist Way by Julia Cameron? You know, I have never actually followed it through, like done it, but I, I'm a big fan of those types of things. And I know her book is, is very well known and and very well respected. And so, you know, it is something I will say, yes, you should, you know, if, if, it, if it resonates with you, it's great. And, and it's built on sort of principles that I 100% believe in. Right. Definitely. For anyone who's listening, it's just like this like 12 week thing that you go through of connecting with your inner artist, whether that be as a lawyer, a physician, literally anybody of learning to just like lower the stakes exactly of what you were talking about of just create for the sake of creating and not for the sake of reception and thinking about how other people are going to look at it. And part of that takes just a level of internal letting go of your inner critic. Yeah. And that is so hard and takes so much mindfulness to like stop judging. And again, especially when social media tells us constantly to think about what you're putting out always that that has been internalized as a level of critic. I think art will become very interesting in the next couple of years to see what level of boundaries people will be pushing and what boundaries won't be pushed at all because of that level of internalization of criticism. I encounter it all the times when I'm teaching adults because it's a phenomenal like how critical people are 
mm-hmm. about stuff that they shouldn't be good at anyway. Like whenever we do stuff, we're like, hey, draw this thing. And they're like, we don't know how to draw. And we're like, we know. That's why we're telling you to draw it. Like, And so we try to create scenarios where people are okay with that. And it's so unconscious where people are like, I, but I'm terrible at it. Or I'm, mm-hmm. this is bad. Or just, and we're like, it's non-judgmental space. Like we're just playing. We're just ex- having fun. We're connecting ourselves back to our physical bodies. We're taking input, but we're exporting it through our hand it's so important to learn and it and it has only become more necessary um in our current world and uh so that's why i love doing that stuff and teaching that stuff especially in those more corporate spaces because people are the people are people and they need it and so if we can help people sort of get back in touch with their humanity it inevitably is going to make things better in our world I think you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> Honestly, you're helping it is, people. It is the the best job I've ever had. I love it. I love doing it. I could see how it could probably be really amazing. People who just don't even think in that concept. And you can probably see that light bulb moment where they learn to let go and just create. And I think that changes how you interact with the world fundamentally because it's changing your internal perception which then changes how you interact, how you have a conversation as play. Like yep. just, it, it's everything at that point. I think learning to let go and surrender to just feel your authenticity out and feel other people's and know that, you know, that's going to create something beautiful. Like you coming into this podcast, you didn't listen to what the episodes were. I don't do that much work on looking at the person who comes on because I want it to be something that's dynamic in the moment of just like wherever we're at, we're going to talk about whatever is on the heart and flow in that <laughs> yeah. way, which is crazy but that's part of the play i hope this is a playful space where people can come on and do that level of conversation yeah it's good i mean it's a rare conversation when you're when you're sort of don't know where you're going with it and it isn't sort of that marketing kind of speak and like okay we're yeah. trying to hit these beats or whatever um so it's, it's nice to it's definitely refreshing to have that <laughs> i'm glad i do ask everyone one question and it is what do you wish other people knew was more normal huh that's a i mean i really feel like i could take some time with it and have a profound answer i think in the podcast space where i don't want to take an hour and get back to you <laughs> yeah. um what, what i'm trying to think of something that would just sort of pop into my head like something mm-hmm. say it again the question is think of something that you've struggled with for years and always internally battled that you wish other people knew was more normal maybe imposter syndrome or something like that i think that people always feel no matter how successful they are or seem to be that and not everybody's the same but i think every that there's a sense of like you know, I'm not, that you're not where you want to be yet. And that everybody, no matter how successful someone appears to be, that they're still struggling with that or can be. I think they are. Um, I can't, again, I can't speak for everyone in the world, but I think that a, gro- a great majority of folks are still grappling with what their place is and, and feeling not like they're there. And I think that, you know, people need to know that that's okay. And that like, you can approach people and you can connect on that level around it, you know, feeling like, I, I always in my head I always had this picture of like somebody at a party thinking like everyone is so much cooler than me and then everybody else thinking everyone's so much cooler than me like everyone acting cool but not feeling cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so no one's cool. It's okay. And you feel this yourself? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I think that and again, this could be me more than everybody else, I don't know. But I think there's a sense I have I definitely have that feeling of like never quite being where I want to be and always feeling like there's another, Mm -hmm. you know, thing beyond and trying to channel that for myself when I look at other people's success, right. And go, Oh, why don't I have that? Instead being like, why don't I do that? 
instead of why don't I have that? I love that. That is exactly what I've been leaning into because I do think that those moments of jealousy, it comes from looking at another person, wanting what they have and thinking that you can't do it yourself. Yeah. Or that you don't have it or deserve it or something. I mean, I think there's just, there's that all those fears and whatever that we're wrapped up with. And it takes a long time. And I've been practicing it for a long time of trying to like basically turn that around as quickly as I can from well, how did they get, or why don't I have, or any of those uh, feelings and turning it into, then let me do it. And like, and what is it that I want from that? Like, cause you know, I think when you see other people's success, what is it that you really want from that success? Do you want to be famous? What does that mean? Do you want more people to like you? Like, does that matter if strangers like you or, you know, do you want more money? And like, why do you want more money? What do you need? You know, and, and, and there's just so much wrapped up in all of it. And if you're, trying to make a living doing this stuff, it's hard, you know, because it does feel like you're just endlessly grasping for some, the next rung. Yeah. Sometimes I like to think of it like an archaeologist. We're just like digging in the sandbox of like, oh, I want that. Well, why? Where did that come from? Like, why am I craving this? And then you find another piece and we're just like trying to understand like all these emotions that just seem to come out of nowhere sometimes of like, how does this relate to me and why? But I think that level of doing that is how you find the peace. Yeah. To exist in this world and the right perspective, because I think frequently it's perspective. If you look yeah. at other people say like they have all that that I want, we stop looking at ourselves and acknowledging all the pieces that we already have. Yeah. And you're an artist. You're doing this. work. Oh, yeah. No, I, I remind myself as frequently as I can that like success is being able to keep doing what I'm doing. Hell yeah. And freedom. But but when you like what you've got and you're like, oh, this is exactly what I want. It's terrifying because then you're like, at any moment, I could not have this. So, you know, there isn't that comfort in that. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that keeps you moving, creating. Yeah. yeah. So, again, I you know, you can look at it two different ways, which is like the endless passion for new stuff and growth and continuing to work hard. But then the other piece is the dissatisfaction of never feeling like you got there, which I don't know. I don't want to get there. I don't want to cross the finish line because that means you're dead. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like whatever, whatever way that, that you are, like, you know, you want to always be running, but then being running all the time is really tiring. Here's where we <laughs> have all the cheesy quotes, stop and smell the roses. It's right. not about, you know, the <laughs> destination. It's about the journey. Right. And like, <laughs> and unfortunately, as cheesy as they sound, I think there's a lot of truth there's, there. There's a lot of truth there. Yeah. Yes. I know it's, it can be rough to be like, oh, those darn posters yeah, that like, they have up. And they are Right. <laughs> Hang in there, kitten. <laughs> exactly. With like someone rock climbing. Yeah. Like those dramatic yeah. photos. <laughs> Why? I know. Well, this has been a great conversation. I had so much fun with you. And yeah, I really appreciate you coming on to the space. You're very welcome. I'm glad it was whatever it is that you wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk um, about anarchy right here. Exactly. This is as anarchist as you get. Where can people find you? Do you have anywhere you want to plug? Yeah. Uh, com. You can see my artwork and there's a podcast that I've done on there with interviewing artists. Um, you can see my work. And then my company, if you're interested, is anotherlimitedrebellion.com. Talk about punk rock. That's where that name comes from. We do a thing in October that that we'll be doing publicly. So it'll be a way to find it. It may, may be on Instagram. It'll certainly be on LinkedIn uh, called The Creative Sprint, uh, which is basically a daily creative challenge every day cool. for the month, for 30 days of October. We'll be challenging people to do what we were talking about, which is like try to make something and be vulnerable and put yourself out there and experiment and risk failure and play. Awesome. So you're invited to join me in a... Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I'll have all of that linked below so that people can go find all your stuff. 
If you enjoyed today's conversation, then subscribe for new episodes released every Wednesday and follow us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Your Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show.